Live from Tel Aviv, two nice Jewish boys. Hi, I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Noor Menninger. This podcast is made in cooperation with the Jewish Journal, www.jewishjournal.com. For almost seven years, a gruesome civil war has been tearing Syria apart. With half a million dead, five million refugees, and seven million citizens who were forced to leave their homes, it seems there's no apparent end on the horizon. The war has changed the Middle East in many ways and has affected all the neighboring countries, including Israel. But it seems that of all these states in the area, Jordan is the one who was forced to bear the brunt under the circumstances. This poor desert kingdom had to absorb millions of refugees who literally ran across the huge border between the two countries. As a country that itself was on the brink of civil war several times in the past, Jordan now faces yet another severe challenge. Into this mess entered Rachel Delia Benaim. Rachel is a reporter, and a few months ago, she embarked on a risky journey across Jordan to study an unexpected cause of the Syrian civil war. What she found was alarming. Lucky for us, she's here to share her story and her fascinating insights. Two Nice Jewish Boys is produced by us on our free time. If you feel like helping us out and donating, go to 2NJB.com donate. Any donation is much appreciated. So um, let's start with uh, how you got into Jordan. How, how did that happen? Sure. Uh, well. Parachuting. <laughs> would have been a lot easier. <laughs> um, my photographer and I, um, who's Israeli, went Sharon. to... Sharon Avraham, who's yeah. fantastic. Everyone should check out his photos. <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> um, really is great. So we crossed at the Sheikh Hussein border crossing um, in the north. And we crossed through on the Israel side with no problems. You know, got our exit visas. All was well. Um, we then took a bus uh, across the Israeli side of the border. Mm-hmm. We literally crossed the Jordan River um, over a bridge said you were now crossing the Jordan River. It felt very biblical. Um, Just in the opposite direction. Yeah, well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we arrived on the Jordanian side, and you were supposed to purchase your visa on arrival. Um, No problem. Ten dinar. We had it ready. And we went to the window to pay, and they saw Sharon's passport, which is Israeli, and they weren't having it. Now, Israel and Jordan have diplomatic relations. It's totally legal for an Israeli to go into Jordan. They were saying it is not. Not on that day. Yeah. No, try again tomorrow. Was it after the incident? No, it was not. Before? Yes. In which? Which was what, a year, year and a half ago? No. No, the recent one. The recent incident in which... um, Yeah, it was a year ago. Was it? Yeah, it was over a year ago, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. A guard in the embassy killed allegedly terrorists who attacked him. And uh, never mind. In anyway. which case, it was afterwards. Okay. Um, this was in October 2017, our trip. So the mm. guard said that, in fact, Sharon needed to be on an organized tour, and that was the only way he was permitted to enter Jordan. Not a thing. Um, so we were asking, you know, is there, we're journalists, is there any way, you know, we can come in, make this happen? Like we cleared it with all the appropriate authorities. Um, and they said, hold on. And they took Sharon into a back room, left me waiting with my visa because I have an American passport. And after a good chunk of time, 
I just wasn't having it. So I walked mm-hmm. to the back. I knocked on the door. I walked in. I asked what was going on. And they were just kind of like talking to Sharon. And Sharon was very calm. Um, and I was not calm. And I was just like, we need to leave. We're on a schedule. We have places to get to. And he said, he can't come in. He's Israeli. And I said, look, we're coming to tell a story about Jordan and about what Jordan is doing for the world and what the world can do to Jordan. Are you telling me that we can't come in here, that we can't come in here and do good for the Jordanian people, that the people who come into Jordan, the foreigners, they're coming to talk about refugees. They're talking about, they're coming to talk about the world's problems. They're not coming to talk about Jordan. Mm -hmm. And we who want to talk about Jordan, you want us to leave? And he looked at me and he said, what's your name? So I told him and he said, you know, if you give me your phone number and your email address, I trust you. I'm going to let you take him in. You do look credible. <laughs> sure. I must say. Hello, everyone. You I have, have glasses and everything. It's true. They're fake. <laughs> uh, anyway, so I gave him my email address, my phone number. Um, we had like a few more backs and forth. What are you really doing? I told him again. And then eventually he let us go. Um, he did contact me every single day we were in Jordan. I did respond. And then once asking, we left. Asking what? Just like, thank you for all the things you're doing for Jordan. Come back. Like, <laughs> selfies. You, wait, That's a drastic wait. change from almost not letting you in to thank you so much for your great service. Want to grab oh, a drink? Yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is They're what it is. They're not allowed to drink. Oh, uh, yeah. No, an, a, an orange juice. Oh, yeah. yeah. You can grab one Keep of those. it PG. Keep <laughs> it PG, guys. So, um, okay. So you cross into Jordan. Now you're in Jordan. Where did you guys stay? In Amman? So we stayed at an Airbnb in Amman in an area called Abdun, which mm-hmm. is um, like a very uh, diplomatic and government-related area, um, which it was crazy to me. It was my first time in Jordan. It very much resembled Jerusalem. Um, with the construction, the hills, just the way that the chaos, yeah, that too. But that was in different areas. Um, but the way that the sun like played off of the stone, even it was like, oh, this is sunset in Jerusalem. It was really, I was bugging out. It was cool. But, That's amazing. So, so yeah. what were you doing there? Let's let's, let's talk get about to that. It. What were you? Yeah, what were you looking for? So initially, ironically enough, uh, we were going to exclusively do a story on. Um, how climate change uh, was a contributing factor to the Syrian civil war, which um, is something that many sociologists, climatologists, um, and different types of people that are studying the region have pointed to. Mm-hmm. Um, however, many of the studies that have been published in the last four years don't put a human face or a human voice to this experience. What what do they point to? So they point to climate change and specifically a drought that started in around 2007, um, which was the most severe route the region has ever seen, um, thus driving farmers to leave their homes in eastern and specifically northeastern Syria to go to cities so that by the time the war broke out, There were a million internally displaced Syrians, most of them farmers, living in cities looking for work. And as Thomas Friedman from the New York Times wrote, um, at the first call of Allahu Akbar, like there were a million people who were frustrated with the government and looking for any any way to get their lives back, to get their livelihood back. And they were ready to protest. Um, There is there's so literally a million people from 
outside the urban areas flooded into who and it's farmers. not who are farmers it's not one urban it's not one city correct so it's several cities correct but there are there are numbers or or, or proof of of this like uh movement yes yeah um so we sharon and i went to jordan to speak to some of these syrian farmers who went to the cities and then went to jordan or some of whom tried to make lives um, continue farming, didn't actually go to the cities, really couldn't, and then ultimately um, left as well because ISIS was coming to their regions. So after, regions. They, after they, they moved um, from their farms to the cities to try and find work and the Syrian war started, they left eventually. You're saying Fleed. many of them mm-hmm. fled, yeah. Correct. Many of them ended up in Jordan. Yes. Okay. So you guys arrived in Jordan and you're looking for these people. That seems like an impossible mission. Yes. So luckily... Hey, were you a farmer in Syria? (laughs) No. Okay. Hey, were you a farmer in Syria? How do you go about finding these people? You just bring a sign and you have it translated (laughs) in all different languages? No. You Um, post in a Facebook group, you know, (laughs) Syrian farmers in Jordan, 2017. uh, It's like secret Oman. Yeah, it's secret Oman. (laughs) So, okay. Um, So all jokes aside. So um, it had required a lot of preparations. Um, I got in touch with um, some different agencies that were doing work in Syria. I asked them to connect me with uh, translators of theirs or local people that were working there who might be able to arrange um, meetings for myself and Sharon with um, Syrian farmers, basically. So the most uh, helpful and key person for us was someone named, um, I'm just going to say her first name, but Isra, um, who is connected to an organization called the Syria Fund. Um, She lives in a place called Azraq in eastern Amman. Uh, Azraq has a large refugee camp. Um, It's very near the Saudi border. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's in the eastern part of the country. It's incredibly arid, incredibly dry. Um, And I had contacted Isra a few weeks before we had gone, and I told Isra, you know, what types of people we were were looking to interview and, and what kind of photos we were looking to take. Um, And she, you know, contacted a bunch of different people in the area and she arranged a lot for us. And then once we were there and we met the people that she connected us with, they connected us with more people. And then it was just, and then people heard, oh, there's an American journalist who's here and wants to talk about Syria. And then there were just tons and tons of people. So you, wait, I got to take a step back. Sure. It sounds frightening to go to Jordan. Yes, Sharon who is a friend of mine, you know, you feel quite protected alongside him. But still, didn't you, like, it's frightening. Do, do you have a death wish going to Jordan? You sound like my parents. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I see the world um, as a place filled with people looking to have meaningful experiences. So... For me, that's part of why I love to travel um, in general. And for me, Jordan was just a new place with new people, with new experiences. Jordan is not a war-torn country. Jordan is not a violent country. So I didn't have any qualms or fears about going there. Um, Again, my parents would say otherwise, (laughs) as would many of my friends. But It's not like you're going on a a sightseeing trip to Petra. It's like you're going, seeking out refugees from the Syrian Civil War. It just sounds dangerous. Like like you stayed in this Azuric place? No, we stayed in Amman. Uh, Why? There's no Airbnbs in (laughs) Azuric. 
Um, no, we stayed in Amman, not because it was unsafe to stay in Azraq per se, but because um, it would have very easily gotten around that, you know, two foreigners are staying at the one hotel and we didn't want to open ourselves up to anything, not that anything would happen. But if we're the only essentially non Jordanian, Syrian, Saudis in an area and there's only one place to stay and then everyone knows where you are, it's just not the best idea okay okay <laughs> so okay so you you're staying in amman you finally isra helps you find these these refugees yes who were uh originally farmers yes and so tell us about meeting you know the first one sure huh. um so the first person we met it was actually a funny story we thought we were meeting one person um and we got there um let me even describe where there was so isra was in the car with us as well as our translator, whose name is Fatima. Um, she lives in Amman, and she would come back and forth with us each day. Um, and we drove to pick up Isra, and then she's like, okay, now make a left on this dirt road. So we're driving for a long time. It was a dirt road, but it really was just dirt. Um, and it was very rocky, and there was just dust everywhere, and you couldn't see more than two feet in front it's of you. the middle of the desert. Completely. Um and all of a sudden, there were just tents that you could see in the distance. And that's where we were going. We were wow. going to these tents. So we arrive, and there must have been, I don't know, at least 12 adults and maybe 10, 12, 15 children that are all just waiting there for us. Um, and Sharon said to me, it's because they don't have TV. <laughs> like, we were the most interesting things happening that day. If they had um, Netflix. Yeah, yeah. maybe not. Maybe um, not. We can't compete with Stranger they Things. They wouldn't have had time for you. It's true. <laughs> They'd be like, sorry. Um, so we arrived thinking we were going to interview one person, and it ended up being that it was this entire extended family really welcomed us, um, and they, they took us into kind of the main tent, um, which was really just like carpets, tarps, and that was it. Um, and we were sitting on cushions, and they brought us tea, which um, I later came to learn we were going to be drinking a lot of this tea all day long, and we had to pace ourselves. Um, but it was so kind, um, and they just were incredibly hospitable before we even sat down to start having this conversation. And um, there were four brothers. We thought we were only interviewing one of them, and all four of them had been farmers. And um, Fatima was translating um for us to the these people um because whose names by the way i'm intentionally not saying for safety reasons um but she was in she was doing the translating for us and they started telling us about how syria is not was is the most wonderful place in the world and they can't wait to go home and mm -hmm. they can't wait till home is like home again and we started pressing them like what does that mean um like what was home that it's not anymore and what are you hoping to go back to and then we got into farming and ultimately, you know, what they were talking about was how when they were younger, the land used to produce incredible amounts of food, produce like you've never tasted before, dates, pomegranates, um, not unlike the uh, Sheva Minim that like I learned about growing up in my Zionist day school. But um, they were talking about all of these, all of these plants and fruits that grew um, and how in the years before they left, they just didn't grow anymore. And there was nothing to eat and there was nothing for them to do. And the government, um, they said, was 
at first not letting them take water out of the ground, groundwater, which is really would have been key for them to continue planting. And then the government got a little bit busy with other things, stopped regulating the groundwater. They started taking the groundwater, but by then it was too late um, and their land was already, you know, mostly destroyed. They couldn't really grow anything. Um, And that's that's when kind of the fighting they were from Homs. So that's when the fighting in their area started. And um, one of their daughters was actually injured, which is why the entire family actually left. Um, so they hadn't left. They had Tom. not gone to the cities. Okay. Correct. So they were part of the, the farmers that stayed. That stayed hoping that things would get better, hoping mm-hmm. that, you know, it would rain again, that the government would stop. But could they confirm that indeed many of the protesters Absolutely. were their co-farmers? Yep. Yeah, they did. And they said many of their neighbors left. Um, they gave me names. They drew me maps um, of like, you know, the people who own this farm, they left in 2009. And the people who are over here, they left in 2010. Left to the city. To the city. Damascus, particularly. Um, and they knew that they pr- protested during... So that they couldn't confirm okay. for me. Um, but what they could confirm is that they left because they couldn't farm okay. anymore. And they went looking for opportunity in Damascus. Okay. So let's talk about that process for a second because sure. the claim is that these farmers from what I understood at least the, the claim isn't that the farmers protested and then led to uh confrontations between I don't know the uh the ruling uh regime and these farmers but that the farmers moved into the city caused lack of produce and also higher demand for different th- and that kind of threw the whole system off. It wasn't that they were the ones or a little bit of both maybe. or was it I want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Are you asking that... Were if- the farmers an active, uh, uh, aggressive, uh, or protest uh, force? S- sure. So I, they were an active protesting force. They were a body of frustrating people that were just waiting to be mobilized. And in fact, they were mobilized by mm-hmm. um, the initial protesters who were not farmers, mm-hmm. many of whom were students. Um and they they were able to join in on this anti-government rhetoric um, mm-hmm. because they themselves felt or rather experienced um, the negative impacts of these government's uh, policies and uh, the lack of economic support that they had been given throughout the drought. Okay. Um, but also yeah. the fact that there was less um, produce in right. Syria, we can presume it affected absolutely the state of syria absolutely so syria itself um it's interesting syria um moved to be a um mostly self-sufficient country in terms of food um they saw it as a national or they see it even as a national security issue Mm -hmm. um so they moved to mostly not import produce they would export but they would self they would produce the food for themselves Um, So when the drought came and they couldn't produce as much just because there was less rain and less water available in general, um, their food sources shrunk dramatically. Um, And because of that, already there was frustration in the cities. Mm -hmm. Um, And then all of these other factors occurred. And I will state now, I am by no means an expert on this. Um, It's just something I've been looking into for the last few months so um, after that first meeting, you, let's say... You well, I want to ask yeah, about the sure. first meeting okay. real quick. Was there any story uh, it, that they told you about their 
their uh, journey, their uh, pilgrimage, I guess, across, uh, not pilgrimage, but the, their crossing of the border and their, I mean, was... So people didn't really want to talk to me about that. Um, okay. In general, most of the people I spoke to actually did not talk to me about the process of leaving Syria and going into Jordan. Um, I would ask, I would never press too hard, and they would always just kind of gloss over it. Um, yeah, I don't know why, but... Difficult to talk about hardships, I guess. Yep. Okay. So, so, yeah, you hit the jackpot, let's say, with this family. You yep. you, you had your first lead. And how did that develop from there? Um, so... From there, um, we actually, Isra had coordinated for us many more interviews that day. So I think we, we ended up speaking to three other families that day, um, which is a lot because we would sit with each of them for at least an hour, probably more than that. Um, the most memorable one for me um, right now is someone I'm actually still in touch with. Um, I don't really speak any Arabic. He speaks no English, but thanks to Google Translate, and his daughter, who is seven years old and is in a uh, UN-supported school in Azraq, she speaks a little English, so she helps us with the translation. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Um, but he um, he came also from Homs, ironically enough, um, and he had been a farmer in Syria, but more for pleasure, not for um, for his livelihood. Um, so he really got to know the land in a really intimate way, not in the stress from making money or not, but just because he really loved it. He grew up in a family of farmers, so his brothers, his father, but he himself wasn't. And he came to Syria, he came rather to Jordan, um, and said, okay, now I'm going to farm because now I don't want to have to look for a job. I know how land works. I know how earth works, but... I know that I can see here that Jordan's soil is salty and dry, just like the soil in Syria was towards the end. So instead of trying to use my old tactics, let me try to use new tactics. And he now is creating um, some, he's innovating rather, a drip in a, a drip irrigation system where he's testing all different types of fruits and vegetables. Um, and he built he built this incredible structure um, and he built, he literally built his own drip irrigation system out of pipes um, and seeds that he brought with him or that he bought from other people and it's flourishing. Um, He's selling produce. So right now he, he is, um, he's also giving a lot away using it to supply for himself. But right now he's testing to see like what works best. What can Mm -hmm. I grow the most of in a short amount of time without, um, without wasting water, because that is a major um, that is a major concern, especially because I'll interject. Interject. Jordan is the second most water scarce country in the world, mm-hmm. um, which is and Jordan had also experienced the same drought that Syria experienced and is still experiencing severe weather. Um, and for a variety of other reasons, Jordan's uh, water situation is not looking good. We and give them a lot of water. Uh, we should mention it maybe that Israel is providing help aiding Jordan in many ways, but also with water. Yes. Um, and there are actually uh, scientists and specifically geologists, climatologists, um, and water experts at Hebrew U that are working with um, 
other scientists in Amman specifically asking the questions, uh, asking questions surrounding the Jordan River because the le- the water levels in the Jordan River are dwindling or decreasing rather, mm-hmm. um, and questions surrounding the Dead Sea, and there actually is scientific partnership there. So we can throw that in so as well. So while doing this journey uh, after the sources of the civil war in Syria and interviewing the refugees, suddenly you start noticing that actually in Jordan, Jordan also faces problems. That's yes, um, basically what happened. Essentially, yes, uh, which is why this is turning into a massive, massive article and research project, which is amazing. Um, So when we were in Azraq, uh, Isra mentioned to us, oh, you have to go to the wetlands. We're like, wetlands? We're in a desert. What do you mean? Um, And she's like, no, no, Azraq is known for its wetlands. And we're literally standing in... A desert out of a cartoon like there's sand everywhere the buildings are sand colored and like covered in sand the cars are covered it's just it's desert so we're like okay sure let's go to the wetlands so one day i think it was the second day we ended up driving to the area that was the wetlands sorry <laughs> and, um we arrived and we parked and there was one other car parked there it was a saudi family we knew from the license plate was a father and his two sons and we all kind of uh, walked into the visitor center which was basically one room um, talking about the wetlands the birds that used to be there uh, the different wildlife that used to be there um, and the uh, water from this uh, area in Azraq that once upon a time provided Jordan with a lot of water then we walked outside and we walked over this bridge and we arrived at this, I mean, circular area. And I said like, oh, which, which way to the wetlands? <laughs> and I was told you're standing in it. And I looked down and there were literally cracks in the ground with thistles coming up. Um, there were, I don't know what kind of plants they were, but like the big, dry, crackly, pointy type brush plants. Um, and it was devastating um, because it was not lush it wasn't, in any way. Not at all. Um, it was just desert. And then we walked. It was over. like a little less desert than desert. Yeah, there, okay. it was like <laughs> desert with some like dead trees or yeah. dead. Yeah. Um, so what do you realize at that point? So I will add that when we walked left and we walked a little bit farther down, there were some wetlands left. Um, so there was like a big relatively speaking big uh reservoir with some grass and there were still some birds but it was by no means the same size as it once was it was by no means the same size as the pictures in the visitor center made it look um and it was just it was mind-blowing to me to see that that this was a place that was really celebrated for the amount of water it had and the amount of water it was able to provide to the country and now it was just dry how long? So there were photos that showed um, that in like 2005, 2007, and 2008, there were literally water buffalo um, in this area. Wow. And like we saw a couple birds, which is great. Um, but we were there the end of October, early November, which is the beginning of presumably the wet season or the winter season um, in, in the region. 
Um, it should have been wetter. There should have been more birds, more animals, more water, and there just wasn't. Um, and I think that was, for me, the first time that I fully internalized what Jordan was going through. Like, I had read about it in studies, but I hadn't, I hadn't fully let it in um, until... Because this is very dangerous for Jordan. Incredibly so. Um, there's, I mean, there's not enough drinking water in the country. Um, I mean, we're seeing what's happening now in South Africa, right? right. In Cape Town, where yeah. in April, there's not going to be any water left. This, this didn't come as a surprise. They knew it was going to happen. They just couldn't solve it. And no one knows how to solve this issue of like what happens when there's no water left. Mm-hmm. Israel, in some ways, is starting to to answer that question with the desalinization technology. There's also um, the uh, a technology that um, turns clouds into water that's still in the testing phases. That could also be interesting. But at the end of the day, there is no clear-cut answer on what to do mm-hmm. and jordan right now um if you look at their main water sources they're running out so if you look at the jordan river again i talked about that that's decreasing look at the dc aquifer in the south which um, was a joint jordanian saudi project that was opened in 2013 that is a non-renewable source of water so once that runs out which it will in the next i believe 10 years it's just not there anymore Um, And if you look at the Zarka Basin, which is another major source of water for the country, that is also depleting at a very rapid rate. Um, There's not enough rainfall to replenish it. And it's just leaving Jordan in a dire situation. And I will add as well that you mentioned this at the beginning, but um, Jordan's taken in millions of refugees over the last 20 some odd years. The Palestinian refugees and Palestinian refugees from the Gulf War who came. They mm-hmm. took in Iraqi refugees and they, they're now taking in, I believe the numbers are at a million and a half Syrian refugees. There are millions more people now taking water from Jordan or using the water in Jordan. And there's just not enough left. I mean, look at what's happening in Yemen, right? There's a lot of, there, that, that, is the one, that is the most water-scarce country in the Middle East, arguably the most water-scarce country in the world or one of them. Um, you think that plays into the fact that, that it's so war-stricken? Absolutely. Um, I read an article about this a few weeks ago, weather.com. You can all check it out. But um, <laughs> Nice plug. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, but if you look at the combination of poor water management policies by the Yemeni government, when there was still a Yemeni government, um, combined with the drought um, and the drought as has been exacerbated by climate change factors, um, there's just not enough water, which leads to there not being enough food. Um, And also when there's not enough, and when water is being used in a way that's not smart, meaning to plant things that take up more water than they provide or more food. So for example, in Yemen, they're planting um, mass amounts of something called cut, which Mm -hmm. is um, a drug that people chew for hours and hours and hours. Um, A lot of taxi drivers in Israel chew it. Do they? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Does it come from Yemen or comes from North? No, no, we grow it. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. (laughs) There's There's a story there. Um, they chew it and then they drive you around. It's alarming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Next time I get into a taxi, I'm going to have to check. Check his yeah. glove compartment. Seriously? Or if it's Yemen. <laughs> Just ask, are you Yemen? 
Um, but cut takes up approximately five times as much water to plant as something like grapes. Um, and it doesn't put water back into the system in the same way that grapes do. Because one eats grapes and it goes through their system and then they... Pee. Yeah, and then that eventually goes back into the earth. And with cut, it's not Sorry, like you're that. Sorry, <laughs> there, there you go. There you go. I, 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 I want to go back to the Syrian refugees. Sure. Because at a certain point, your research route split into two, from mm -hmm. what I understand. Yes. Because you start to get interested in Jordan, mm -hmm. the Jordanian situation. But then there's still the Syrian refugees. Did yes. you manage to meet Syrian refugees who could testify that indeed they were farmers who moved to the city and took active parts in the protests. Yes, so we did meet one person like that. Um, he had gone from, I'm not, mm, I need my notes, I don't remember if it was Homs or Hama, um, to Damascus, was looking for work, did get minimal, did receive minimal amounts of work, um, and then ultimately joined the protests, um, hoping that, the government his hope was that the government would actually provide support to farmers it didn't happen things turned violent and he left um and he went on kind of a circuitous route um and made it to jordan and ultimately to azraq and when you um, pitched the theory to all of them at a certain point i i guess you asked mm -hmm. them did you find consensus oh absolutely absolutely everyone everyone knew someone who had gone, or multiple people who had moved to cities, who had moved, um, who protested, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and it was not, it shocked no one. It shocked no one I spoke to. They said, of course, of course that's what happened. Right. Um, and I asked them, you know, why, why is it that these people's stories are not more public? And they said, because no one cares about us, um, which really broke my heart. Apropos, um, I, I have to also ask, how are they doing? I mean, if we get a little political, you know, we hear every day all over the world about uh, the Palestinian uh, refugees in the territories. I wonder what this is situation with the Syrian refugees in Jordan. Right. So I can only speak to what I saw, which is obviously less than a fraction of all of the people who are living there. Um, I also was only in Azraq. I mean, I was also in Amman, but I didn't meet anyone who identified themselves to me as a Syrian refugee in Amman. So I'm really only speaking to the individuals that I met in Azraq who were not living in the Azraq refugee camp, who were living in Azraq, the um, township itself, with that qualifier. Um, it's difficult. Many of them are still living in temporary structures. Um, some of them have built their own homes out of some, like literally cement bricks. Um, they don't have doors. The homes that I was invited into didn't have doors. They didn't have furniture. Um, Do they get any recognition from the Jordanian government, like permits, work permits? Um, so people actually were very worried to speak to me about anything to do with the Jordanian government. Um, I will say that what I was told continually was just the gratitude that these people had that they were somewhere safe. Um, but other than that, people were not willing to speak, which makes a lot of sense, yeah. but we're not willing to speak about the government. So how, I have to ask, how large of a role do you think that 
it or that it played this this climate change this drought because it seems to me that it, i mean i hate to to put it this way but it kind of uh is ignoring the fact that uh maybe it's not ignoring maybe you're saying it's just another factor but it's kind of ignoring the fact that it's uh it's, I mean, for all intents and purposes, Syria is a dictatorship with a minority leadership of, you know, only Alawites. And they're just controlling these millions of people. In a made-up country. In a made-up <laughs> country, yeah. With... By the way, we left on uh, the anniversary of, uh, we, well, we left on November 4th. So there were protests, wow. like, as we were leaving okay. the country. I'm just going to leave that there. But anyway. November 4th being the... I'm gonna butcher this, but Balfour was at the end ah, okay. of Balfour, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um Yeah, so they weren't too happy about that. But no. uh but I, but I, what I'm saying is it, how large of a role do you think it played in this whole mess that happened? How I mean maybe in the end of the day you mean I, Yeah, yeah. I could see it being somewhat of a catalyst, but it's hard for me to imagine that that is you know, when there's political instability, these kind of things seem I don't know, inevitable, I guess. Sure. Um, again, not an expert yeah. qualifying with that. Um, it There's not a doubt in my mind that it was a contributing factor, one of many. Um, and something that I'm realizing just as a human is that um, most people that I meet just want to be able to live their lives happily, make sure that their family is taken care of, that their family is okay, that, you know, their immediate community is okay, that things aren't blowing up, you know? Mm -hmm. um, jobs, there's jobs. Right, which, yeah. you know, when I say that they're okay, I mean financially, mm -hmm. emotionally, there's a roof over their heads. They can go to, the kids can go to school. People, if they're sick, are taken care of, whatever that means in a society. Um, and I think that, in Syria, there were many reasons why that was not the case. And I do think that the lack of rainfall, the lack of water availability, then the lack of food availability was a contributing factor to people's general well-being not being okay. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not excluding the fact that um, there they were... were of course. Yeah. Um, and there were other factors as well. Um, specifically the bit about, you know not borders being drawn in a way yeah. that maybe were not the most sensible mm -hmm. um, is another contributing factor. And there are dozens more, but mm -hmm. it's, there's not a doubt to me that um, the drought that was yeah. exacerbated by climate change was, was it a just seems important to, to clarify to me because it, it's, it's, it's like very easy from that to draw the, the conclusion that, you know, uh, I don't know, these environmental changes will inevitably lead to to uh, conflict. Death and destruction. Where, where, whereas, I don't know, in the United States in the 30s, you had a, a horrible drought that displaced people, but there wasn't, like, a civil war didn't break out. And it, it in, in, in a certain way, kind of takes away from the fact that, you know, you had this Arab Spring, and the, these were people who rose up and said, okay, we want to do something about the fact that we're being, you know suppressed and, and and you know but even the arab spring needed um a match to light the fire so sometimes yeah. the match is someone burning himself in the market like uh, in uh, where was it uh i forgot tunisia tunisia yeah. and sometimes maybe it's a drought 
Yeah. Right. Sometimes it's also the lack of bread in Egypt as caused by a wildfire in Russia where Egypt got its wheat from, which was a heat-induced fire as was exacerbated by climate change. So then the Egyptians couldn't get their bread, Uh um, which led to further unrest. I'm not saying that Egyptian uprising was directly correlated to the fact that there was no bread but again it was a contributing factor okay i can't feed myself i can't feed my family the government's not helping me what do i do now Mm -hmm. the articles um when are they due the end of the month okay yes awesome but they're coming out uh in segments right yes um so they should start there will be three as my editor is currently envisioning it there will be three chapters or three different editions of it um to start being published at the end of the month with okay. sharon's photos which are amazing and and it's basically the f- like the first time such an thorough article from jordan of people who were there or you know it's pretty rare yeah, is what i'm trying to say so there have been uh some articles about uh climate change being a contributing factor to the syrian civil war um, this is, as far as I can tell, the first time... Boots on the ground. Boots on the ground um, on on that front, as well as then bringing Jordan into the mix of all of this. That is amazing. So, to um, read the articles, you're on Facebook? I'm on Facebook. Um, it will also be on the Weather Channel, which is where I work. Weather.com. Um, weather.com, yes. And they have... Facebook will put links, and you have also Twitter. You're Absolutely. on Twitter, and uh, that, that's amazing. Great. Yeah, really, fascinating, really inspiring. Thanks. Um, and before we go, before we go, we have a uh, collaboration with the Jewish Journal of Greater Los Angeles. The Jewish Journal is a great news source uh, for Jewish news and all news. Uh, so check them out at JewishJournal.com. Yes, and uh, guys, we accept donations. So if you want to throw us some cash, we will not object. Nope. It will there's help. A, yeah, there's a donate link on the website. So uh, just click it and throw all your money in there. <laughs> That's it. Rachel, thank you so much Thanks, for guys. coming. Thank and you good for luck. joining us. Much appreciated. Bye.